Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I am joined on today's episode by Miriam Felton-Dansky of Bard College. Welcome, Miriam. Uh, happy end of semester, end of year, holiday season. Uh, we in the McGinley Camp household here in St. Louis are gearing up for Christmas. We quite uncharacteristically got the tree up the Saturday after Thanksgiving. We were honored to be invited to our friend's house for the first night of Hanukkah. Um, so I just thought I, I'm curious, what does the holiday season outlook, uh, how does it appear in the Felton Dansky household? Um, well, we, I am, we are midway through. Uh, I can send a, a live update from Hanukkah. We are midway, uh, more than midway. We're almost through with Hanukkah. Um, and uh, for the first time this year, my son has been allowed to take the shamash, which is the leader, leader candle, and light the other candles. Um, and he has so far done so safely. So that's great news. Um, you know, I think that um, for me, the winter solstice is always a important, a kind of important moment in terms of the year. And this year, uh, I am shocked and pleased to be saying that after the winter solstice, I will be going on sabbatical um, and I will be in California. Um, so the first, for the first time in my entire life, I will not be experiencing January, February and March in the northeastern United States. So that's the holiday that actually is wow. is, is more in a secular way on my mind. Um, it's been a, a tough year <laughs> to have Hanukkah um, for many reasons, but I'll leave it there. Well, I think solstice and um, pending leave are, are always reasons for, for celebration. That's fantastic. Miriam and I are also joined by Shayoni Mitra of Barnard College. Shayoni, it is great to see you again. Um, I'll ask you the same thing. How are the holiday observances shaping up for, for you and your family? Um, I will say that, you know, fall into winter is this delightful collision of cultures in our household always. So we start with Durga Puja, go to Halloween, then Diwali, then Thanksgiving. And now, uh, you know, our celebrations are always constrained by the public school holidays being just a week in New York. Mm. Um, so we never travel, but we do extensive, actually, both Hanukkah and Christmas things uh, because of our various friends. And it's just always been a gift. Um, and this year, more than others, I'm really grateful for all of those invitations. Well, I'm glad to hear it. Um Today on the podcast, we have three topics that I have been looking forward to, to getting into. We didn't select these topics on a theme, but it occurs to me that they all do concern in various ways the performance-oriented responses to current crises. Um, we read Rustam Barucha's recent book, The Second Wave, Reflections on the Pandemic Through Photography, Performance, and Public Culture, especially the second part. It's a, it's a book of three long essays, and the second of the three regard grief, mourning, and performance. We're going to talk about the quite dynamic and contentious issues around speech, protest, and censorship on American college campuses, specifically, of course, in relation to the ongoing war in Israel-Palestine. Um, as we record this on Wednesday, December 13th, uh, last week, um, uh, events including the congressional testimony of university presidents uh, point out the some of the performative factors and elements in the debates over acceptable speech on campus. Finally, we read recent responses written by Estrelita Beatriz and Jacob Padron to the recent essay by Annalisa Diaz called Decomposition Instead of Collapse, Dear Theater, Be Like Soil. This will be the, actually the first time we've had an opportunity to talk about that uh, provocative essay on the podcast. Before moving on to these topics, let me first say I am recording in my office at Washington University in St. Louis, which is situated on the ancestral land of several indigenous groups, including the Osage Nation, the Missouria, the Missouria tribe, the Miami people, and the Illini Confederacy. In 1808, the Osage Nation ceded its lands by treaty under threat of destruction by the United States Army. I'd like to acknowledge this history and also thank the Buddha Center for American Indian Studies here at WashU for making this information accessible. 
And I'd encourage listeners, as, as always, to learn more about the territory where they live. Um, and please also go to our website, uh, ontappod.com, and read the land acknowledgement page for more. So we read the second wave reflections on the pandemic through photography, performance, and public culture by Rustam Barucha. Uh, this book was published in 2022 by Seagull Books, which is distributed by University of Chicago Press. Um, Barucha is a name that people in our field should know. He's a cultural critic, a dramaturg based in Kolkata, India. He has written many books on theater and cultural practice. Um, and I think he may be best known for essays he wrote uh, in the 1980s that criticize Western engagements with Indian theater, including famously Peter Brook's Mahabharata um, and also uh, attitudes toward Indian theater um, expressed by Gordon Craig, Jersey Grotowski, and Richard Schechner. In this book, Barucha responds to the, the the COVID pandemic, and especially the moment of the second wave, which was truly catastrophic in India, and which dates to April, twenty twenty one. And there, I'll just say by way of an overview, there are three essays, and you could say that each essay pairs a, a theme of human experience with a discrete cultural form. The first essay examines death through photography that emerged out of the pandemic. The second, which we all read, looks at grief and mourning through contrasting performances, the traditional mourning practices of India and a, and a variety of European and American works of time-based art or performance art or installation, um, but also novels, also theater. Uh, and the third essay called Innings, Endings, Beginnings meditates on extinction through examinations of the trope of the end of the world in various sites and formations, including the Mahabharata, um, in cultural representations of human-made catastrophes, including genocide, ecocide, and the bombing of Hiroshima as it's memorialized in museums. Um, I really enjoyed reading this. I, I think part of what I noticed about it um, was that there's there's nothing interesting about um, Baruch's distance uh, or the sort of level of intimacy and personal nature of the essays. It's the essay form, which I think is naturally personal, um, but he is ranging over so many different works of art and instances of, of cultural practice that in a certain way, he's always talking about something other than his own experience, but he's also never not, I think, processing and relating um, what he experienced uh, going through and, and witnessing the, the, the wave and the, and the, I don't know, overwhelming amount of, of suffering and loss that happened um, in the pandemic. Um, so I'm curious to know what, what you two thought. I, I, I really enjoyed this. I felt it was so clear and human. Um, uh, it also brought into relief my own sort of not too distant memories of living through the pandemic in my own way. Um, I don't know, uh, Shayoni, Miriam, what were your what were your sort of main top of mind reactions to, to reading Barucha on the pandemic? Uh, you know, this is a really tough question, uh, partly because I had first read the I, I had talked to Rustam about the book, I think, in the fall um, or, or early this spring, uh, spring 23. I had first read it in in its entirety in 23. And then, you know, f in preparation for today, um, reread sections on performance. Um, and what I'm struck by is, of course, he's writing about the very specific set of conditions that even personally for me are fairly traumatic around the second wave in India. Um, and all of the things that he talks about, watching it from a distance, being disallowed sort of regular mourning practices, um, uh, what happens when the intimacy of mourning and grief is taken away from us. Um, and I had read it, of course, all in the context of the second wave. Um, and in revisiting it, I am really struck by how applicable his thoughts are to moments of intense crisis. Uh, and loss of life of the of scales we cannot imagine, um, and given our you know modern contemporary conditions of viewing these scopally through screens and again from this enforced distance, um, mm -hmm. so it's it's work that is deeply moving and Peniel, as you say, both very personal but to me also um, strangely applicable across a lot of situations. Um, I agree. I mean, it was 
very hard uh, reading this, um, the discussion of how um, during the second wave in India, one of the things that, um, one of the many catastrophes was the loss of um, the, the, the possibility for mourning practices and for, for both the time, the space, the resources, and um, even kind of restrictions on movement and all of that um, disallowing mourning practices to proceed. It was very difficult not to think about Gaza in this moment um, and, and the ways that those things are unfolding there. Um, I, I also really appreciated so many aspects of this book um, panel, as you said, one of the things that I think the writing of it does, the structure of the book and the actual kind of um, form of the writing, is it is it opens up space. It's a kind of um, spacious book in the sense, not in the sense of being very long, but in the sense of allowing time to meditate on each topic and kind of returning to, to topics again and again. Um, and I appreciated that formally as a way of resisting this um, kind of this the the temporality of crisis that he um, talks about so much um, a couple several things were really striking um, he he talks about several um, specific theater um, performance practices um, and specific performances but I was also in the in the last section which talks about endings and beginnings I was struck by the meditation on um, on the exit the idea of exit um, and how in in thinking about um, theater as a form, we can tend to pay so much attention to entrances and so little attention to exits. Um, and he talks about the kind of uh, significance of the exit sign, its relationship to emergency, um, but also our kind of the way that our attention is drawn to what is entering and not to what is exiting and what it would mean to, to rethink that. So those were a few of the things I found um, striking. I, I uh, really appreciated reading this book. Yeah, I I really I think I responded in a similar way to um, both of you that there it it on the one hand it seemed I was like oh why are we reading a book about the pandemic now and it, of course it actually it was it was odd because in my last week of class uh, teaching this class on theater space and historical practice I had talked about streaming theater and had gone through my notes about some of the works the works of theater that I had seen during the pandemic and the ones I thought worked really well, the uh, fake friends and then split britches. But that experience of going into those notes and then remembering what it was like to watch those shows in that moment brought up some feelings that were, that were pretty intense um, in the moment when I was, you know, wanting to talk about these things as kind of instances of mediated performance. So the pandemic feels like it was a long time ago. It wasn't a long time ago. It's still with us in, in many ways, but the, the sort of accumulation of different crises and um, problems in, in contemporary life seems to have pushed it back in, in memory uh, somewhat. But I, I responded to certain things. I, I don't know. It was such a, I think his, perhaps just because of his intellectual life and aptitudes, but maybe because he's not American and because I tend to hear a lot of the voices and perspectives on the pandemic from the American or the, you know, uh, English or Anglo perspective, it, it was it was striking to me that this book did not deal with trauma as a category so much as it dealt with different dimensions of the present experience of loss and the the blockages of bodily energy that, that occur when mourning is not enabled or, or, or not able to be accomplished. Um, I thought, I, I absolutely thought, um, as I think you said, Shayoni, that the, the method of, in a way it, it was, I think, served by his status as a cultural critic. Like his method is to look carefully and thoughtfully at pieces of art and the ones he selected and the instances, not just of pieces of art, but of individual photographs and narratives highlighted the impact of these events on individuals. And of course, there's citation of numbers. We know that you know millions of people died in the pandemic and hundreds of thousands of people are dying in the time period that he's talking about in India. But seeing a photograph of a man on the side of the road who's separated from his family, can't get home, learning about the death of his infant son or um, learning about specific practices, you know, among dozens or, you know, alternatives, but specific um, traditional mourning practices, to me felt very appropriate. It felt like it brought the human dimension of it to me clearly. Um, 
And so I think it was, you know, it, it was it was particularly valuable for that sense. There was a kind of element of embedded critique, or I don't know if it was critique in the way he contrasts in that second chapter the traditional sort of ritual ritual steeped religious practices. I believe it's of the um, of specific communities in in Jodhpur, Rajasthan. Um, you learn about these practices and what happens when they're interrupted. And then there's a series of bits of live art, which all seem very intellectual and abstract. And, and there's a sort of culminating analysis of Taryn Simon's 2016 piece in Occupation of Loss, which involved the hiring and um, relocating of professional mourners from all over the world. Um, and it, it, I don't know, it was something, there was some very eloquent statement, I think, about different things that we call performance, and but also cultural contrast, like what the what the, the distinctive values or forms of ex, um, experience are that come through in traditional ritual forms versus um, rarefied gallery art. And I felt like there were unstated critiques <laughs> that landed on me about how, um, what those contrasts mean. And, you know, Peniel, I'm going to sort of both take from what you're saying and disagree a little bit, which is, to me, um, the first thing when you said, you know, I don't find the word trauma in here. Fundamentally, I think what Rustam is getting us toward is this idea of sociality of death, mm -hmm. right? Um, and he talks about it in these rituals as embodiment. And I think um, very much, and this is the whole sort of pandemic context that we were talking about earlier, what happens when we can't participate physically in um, mourning rituals. But to him, mourning rituals are collective. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's the point. And he's he sort of, uh, he you know has this bit about uh, ritual performs itself through reenactment. Uh, he talks about the death as a highly charged community event. Mm -hmm. um, and to me, fundamentally, the critique here, and I don't think it's actually very subtle, it's very deliberate, is this uh, question of what function does death and mourning rituals perform in Eastern and Western contexts. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, somewhat very reluctantly, I sort of uh, dip my toe into trauma studies in the West. Um, and, you know, even someone like Basil van der Kolk and um, The Body Keeps Score, or more recently, there's been a lot of talk about Judith Herman and trauma and recovery. And again, her idea of trauma or recovery from trauma is a social function. Uh, but there's this lovely, uh, and I think extremely revealing snippet in Van der Kolk, where he talks about these, uh, you know, in Africa, um, there were these moments, I think it was in the Congo after the Civil War, where um, trained Western psychotherapists would go in and try and talk about and treat people for PTSD. And one of the examples there had been, well, they were trying to keep me by myself in a dark room and get me to talk about feelings, yeah. whereas the community outside was drumming, mm -hmm. right? And I think even trauma studies is moving towards this idea of if we have to think about collective grief mm -hmm. and recovery from that grief, we have to participate in social embodied rituals that center death. Mm -hmm. um, and I think... Uh, this is the richness of reading someone like uh, Rustam, is he gives us many very localized, whether it's Jodhpur, Rajasthan, or a, um, you know, a, an ICU bed in Kolkata, or somewhere, um, uh, as you said, this laborer sitting by the Nizamuddin Bridge in Delhi, um, crying, receiving news of his um, son, uh, they're very localized examples, but the argument is still the same. Mm -hmm. What is the social function of death and mourning? Right? Um, and I'll say one other quick thing, which is this moment of the laborer talking on the phone, uh, which also ties to his critique of uh, the occupation of loss mm -hmm. and how he contrasts it with the work of Mahashweta Devi and then Usha Ganguly in their piece, Rudali, mm -hmm. which is mourning as work. Right. And who has the luxury to mourn as as rituals of mm -hmm. loss? Mm -hmm. uh, and in the 
example of that worker in Nizamuddin, uh, who is away from his family, has never met his infant son, uh, who worries about leaving and saying, I don't even have work, I don't even have money, how am I going to go home and participate in um, all of the rituals around my son? Uh, And similarly, I think the fundamental critique he brings to occupation of loss as this, you know, somewhat aestheticized and anesthetized sort of version in the Park Avenue Armory and really in Fifth Avenue in New York is that these mourners were brought and there were all of these sonic and embodied uh, sort of explorations of uh, mourning rituals. But he contrasts this with Mahashweta Devi's story really of the early 90s and then a 1993 play version of it by Usha Ganguly where professional mourners through a very intricate matrix of caste and class see mourning as work and what what is the social function that hiring of these workers fulfill in our need to grieve publicly Um, So I think there's a lot to unpack there about who even has the luxury to mourn in ways that fulfill its social functions. Yeah, I think that's very well put. I I don't want to take up too much time. I want to hear more from uh, you you and Miriam, but I'll say that I think you're right. I think that critique is not, it's not particularly subtle. I think he, he makes the point without stating it perhaps outright. He, he says, you know, I, it was really hard to find if I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but I think there's a moment where he says it was it was hard to find comparable examples of, um, you know, artwork that treats mourning from the Indian side of the comparison, because it is just so unusual on his account to find people talking about mourning and loss autobiographically. And I thought in a way autobiographically was a bit of a euphemism for, you know, individualistically and, and in a sort of, you know, inward looking way. And I think he manages to make this contrast very clear without being disrespectful. Though I would say there are communal practices of observing death in the West and in, you know, the United States and and Europe, et cetera. I think his point is absolutely correct that on the whole, to use gross generalizations, it's perhaps less of a, you know, the Western experience, speaking for myself as an example, is more inward looking and how does this make me feel as opposed to exercising the event through relationality, communication with others. Um, But yeah, it was one of the many gems in this is to see that comparison made. Well, um, I think listeners should definitely um, check this book out. It's a uh, um, you know full of uh, Barucha's erudition, his uh, skillful and, and very humane and sensitive uh, abilities as, as a cultural critic, and really puts a historical event into context in a in a way that you can't really imagine doing otherwise. Um, we're going to move on now and talk about. Um, Basically, the you know the the issue of speech protest in relation to the war on campus. Before we dive into this, I just want to say, and this is always true on the podcast, um, but I want to say it now before this topic, which is that co-hosts, guests on the t- on the podcast speak for themselves. We speak in our own voice under our own name. Um, we don't always agree with each other. We don't necessarily represent each other's views or any views of our employers or colleagues, etc. So it may be that in this discussion, you know, uh, we will say things that um, are contentious, people disagree with, but we're doing that just um, as an expression of our own views. Um, when we were planning this episode and selecting topics, we all three wanted to talk, um, and this was a couple of weeks ago now, um, about how the outbreak of the war after Um, or on and after October 7th um, was affecting life on campus. And I know at that time, many of my colleagues at WashU were grappling with problems of how to respond to students who were grieving, um, whether from the awful violence of the uh, Hamas-led attacks on October 7th or the 
subsequent bombing, the massive loss of life, the invasion and the displacement of, of Palestinians, especially in the, in the Gaza Strip that followed. Um, and at least, you know, speaking, uh, and I don't think our experience here was actually atypical. It was immediately clear after those events in mid-October that the um, university's commitment to free speech and free expression was going to be tested and that certain kinds of declarations of concern, demonstrations of protest or solidarity um, were going to be more problematic um, than others. So listeners are probably familiar with a pattern uh, that has apparently been common across the country and which was crystallized, I think, in the congressional testimony that um, happened late last week, uh, where university presidents from MIT, Penn, and Harvard um, were asked to testify. Um, And that's the demonstrations of solidarity with Palestinian people um, faced uh, very strong backlash. And as part of that, particular attention was being paid to the meaning of specific utterances and displays and interpret strong specific interpretations of certain utterances were were offered um in particular the the phrase from the river to the sea was identified on my campus um as one that was problematic um but there have been other things that have happened since then um and there are many aspects of this that we could talk about but uh i wanted to you know, just point out from your editorial that was published in the Columbia Spectator, um, which responded to the suspension, I believe the suspension of chapters of student, Students for Justice in Palestine, Palestine and Jewish Voice for Peace at Columbia. Um, you pointed out in that that the that demonstration and protest tactics under discussion are not just sort of classical speech acts. In a way, a lot of what we've heard, especially last week, this week, um, has to do with um, what people are, how people are talking about speech and free speech, written or spoken, but that these activities have theatrical theatrical qualities as well, right? Display of symbolic objects, um, gestures, um, efforts to use public and visible spaces um, to make contested claims. So I think one of the things that's been on my mind about this moment is that it encourages us to think about how performance activity communicates, um, how it communicates intention unintentionally, unintentionally, how there's uh, a sort of work and a field of contestation about what particular things mean and the stakes involved. So, you know, there has been plenty of commentary uh, on how to understand the pressure put on university leaders to suppress speech on campus um, and how to understand the resignation of um, Elizabeth McGill at Penn, for example. Um, but Shayuni, I really appreciated your call in that editorial to think about the theatricality of protest in this moment. Um, so I guess what I'll do is I'll ask you both to think about the same question, which is what um, I'm, I'm interested in knowing if in your thoughts about what's been happening on campuses in response to the war in the last uh, couple of weeks has changed. Are you feeling the same way about it now than you were when we were talking about doing this segment two weeks ago? Um, And I also hope we can talk about the analysis of performance and what those abilities and those ideas, uh, what they might serve in this moment. So I don't know, um, Miriam, do you wanna lead us off? Sure, Um, I have several thoughts on this. First, I hope that um, for anyone who hasn't read uh, Shayoni's essay in the Columbia Spectator, I hope that people will. It's very insightful um, response to to the theatricality of protest, to protest, um, and you know, it's titled Protest with Care, really giving some thought to what that actually means and the role of the university um, and, of, and specifically of students and faculty within that. Um, so I, Shayoni, I really appreciated reading your essay. Um, yeah, I, I think that um, one, um, one thing that uh, has been unfold, you know, there have been many things unfolding, protests on campus, protests in many public spaces, um, and I'm talking about in a US-based protest space, um, protests that uh, are held digitally, protests that unfold on social media. Um, One of the things that was particularly striking to me, um, this is not immediately going to speak to, um, to your question about campuses, but one of the things that was immediately striking to me was um, the the way that protest actions um, like Jewish Voice for Pieces um, 
sit-in in Grand Central Station, um, their action at the Statue of Liberty, um, and the their actions specifically to other central sites of movement, mobility, um, or, um, or, or, or other sites that hold a specific civic or um, public dimension. Um, how, how carefully thought out those are um, and how reliant on um, group attention those are. And so um, because of that, I was thinking a lot about actually some, um, some things I've been thinking about for a long time. Um, one is uh, simply the politics of attention, um, because I know that uh, for many um, who are uh, thinking about how to sustain opposition dissent um, in this you know, ongoing crisis, um, questions of endurance, stamina, um, have come up, um, and uh, uh, you know. So I was thinking about the politics of sustained attention to crisis. What does it mean to be attendant to a crisis immediately, and then what does it mean to sustain that over a long period of time? Um, and that actually, theater as an art of sustained attention uh, has something to contribute to that kind of set of thoughts. Um, and then the other thing is, uh, you know, as I was researching my first book, Viral Performance, one of the things what, that I was thinking about was the way that. Um, political performance can shape itself for a secondary audience. Um, so how, how can something be speaking in a meaningful way to an immediate audience, but how can it also be something that is able to be circulated, able to be disseminated. And, um, you know, many, many people uh, have shared the kind of composite photo juxtaposing the ACT UP um, protest at Grand Central um, many years ago with um, JVP's occupation of Grand Central much more recently. Um, and uh, I was thinking about um, the work, the um, explicitly so-called viral work of the um, collective general idea who were um, the creators of the ubiquitous um, aids, uh, posters, stamps, um, sculptures that were intentionally as and, and in their own words viral um, during that moment of crisis. And so thinking about how um, we, we are naturally and correctly skeptical of the function of social media being owned as it is by companies like Meta who are exercising all forms of censorship um, in speech at this moment as well, which is a whole other speech related topic we could think about. Um, I also think that um, that uh, protests that are visually framed in that way and intended to be seen by secondary audiences, um, that there's something very deeply connected to the history of protest theater there. Um, and that has been really moving to, to me to see. Um, I'll stop there. There's more I could say about what's been happening on Bard's campus and, and other things related to that. But I, I want to um, stop there and, and uh, Shayoni, turn to you. Um, yeah, thank you so much, Miriam. Um, and I would say, um, you know, I think, uh, uh, Hanel, your questions leading off this section are exactly right in that it's hard to know what we feel because so much is changing. Um, and so I really appreciated uh, Miriam's idea of stamina and sort of the theater as giving us a sort of um, discipline of durational stamina, if you will, which is so important in this moment. Um, I do want to reiterate that, you know, even though I've written an op-ed and I'm involved in all kinds of uh, thinking and writing and organizing on campus, I obviously speak only for myself in this moment and on this podcast. Um, so I think there are many things to think about in the current moment, but what I have really been craving is what we are doing now, which is to be able to talk about the theatricality and performativity of protest without fear of uh, suppression of speech or without fear of it being uh, sort of uh, really eclipsed or reduced to sort of um, readings and misreadings of certain phrases or words, right? Um, and I think, Panel, as you were saying, so much of the congressional hearings of these three college presidents, uh, who I will note were all women, uh, was around uh, you know, speech acts like what does river, from the river to the sea mean? What does the word genocide mean? Uh, and I think there's a lot of work that, again, performance theory and um, sort of Austinian speech acts can offer there of what is the saying of something doing in the moment. Uh, but if you zoom out a little bit, 
I think what many of us are feeling is that we are really fighting for the right to protest to begin with. Because so much of protest has been, uh, again, caricaturized, demonized, outright suspended, outlawed, etc., etc. So to me, fundamentally, we have to, as a scholar of political performance, I have to proceed from this idea that we have to preserve our right to protest um, in ways that are meaningful, in ways that are instructive, in ways that um, are theatrical and pedagogical and all of those things. Um, And I think... A second thing that I've been thinking a lot about is when we are willfully made to engage only in the meaning of speech acts or words, what is the work it's doing in uh, eclipsing other real violences? So for instance, I think one of the things that makes this crystal clear to me is we have to think about these moments in terms of performance, is the shooting of the three uh, college students in Burlington, Vermont, from Brown, Haverford, and Trinity, for what we, and has been widely reported, what we understand as simply for wearing a keffiyeh and speaking in Arabic. What identity was being performed then that was so violent and so threatening uh, that we have three young men in sort of uh, as victims of um, gun violence, one of whom has had life-altering injuries. Uh, And so there is actual bodily violence that is colliding with symbols of performance. Uh, And we really have to think about visuality, orality, uh, speech acts, uh, embodiment. Again, all of these terms that we all think with and work with Uh, and how they're being uh, really mobilized in the current moment. Yeah, I I agree. I think one of the things that's been uh, disconcerting about the spectacle of the last week is that it's been successive news cycles. If you look at the New York Times, where apparently the most important thing happening is, will these university presidents survive the pressure and can they get past the, you know, the the roundly criticized, but then upon reflection, kind of reasonable testimony that they gave about what, in fact, their campus codes were. Um, And while that is happening, which is, you know, a reliable genre of kind of American televisual political theater, um, there was a horrible attack on three American college students for for wearing keffiyeh. Um, and the bombing after the end of the truce in Gaza has resumed and thousands and thousands of ordinary people in, in Gaza are dying. Um, but people's attention <clears throat> is successfully being drawn to these sort of debates. So that dynamic, which is hard to ignore, makes me feel a little bit unsettled about diving into the kind of intellectual niceties of speech act theory, though I wanted to talk about it because I think that's what I think people download this podcast, not to keep up on current events um, or to process big historical events, but to understand how these affect what, um, what we do in our, in our, uh, in our teaching and research. Um, And there are very interesting, you know, facets here of this debate. And there's not enough time, I think, to get into anywhere really insightful or conclusive about this, but it, one one of the things I've wondered is there are clear efforts to say certain speeches, certain phrases are should need to be considered hate speech and anti-Semitic. So from the river to the sea is one. Um, uses of the word intifada is, is another where I believe that when people say this, they certainly mean different things. But one of the dynamics that you're seeing is the university's you know, um, receiving pressure to say certain things are over the line and need to be censured. Um, It's hard to imagine that that so easily spills over into uh, waving of a Palestinian flag or wearing a a garment associated with solidarity for Palestinian people. Um, But there was uh, an event that you both might have seen at Yale um, earlier this week where uh, protesters took a Palestinian flag and momentarily hung it or attached it to a large menorah that was on display in New Haven. And the university 
um, came and, and made a declaration that that was unacceptable. The university president, Pale, uh, or Peter Salovey, said, um, said in a statement that that was unacceptable, that was anti-Semitic. And I understand, right, in a way it's a political flag being attached to a religious symbol. You can understand how that could be objectionable, but you're seeing moment to moment, day by day, uh, a lo- lines being drawn about what, not just what the acceptable speech is or what it is acceptable to say or not say according to definitions that are decided by who knows who, <laughs> not not according to public forums, um, but that also the display of certain objects, of certain flags or, um, or the use of, of um, certain visible objects could come under censure as well. So it, it definitely seems as though the 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 discursive field of what does it mean to do X with your body? What does it mean to wear this in public um, is suddenly something where people are going to feel they may be punished for it or they may they may be interpreted to being, they may be labeled as an anti-Semite, frankly, for doing things that they understand to just be expressing solidarity with people currently under bombardment. Um, that's upsetting. That, that, that's, that's worrisome um. to me. I wanted to add a couple of um, a couple of brief um, points. One is for those who are interested in learning a little bit more um, about the um, specifically the Harvard um, case. Uh, I I really recommend Peter Beinart's article in Jewish Currents, um, which uh, is titled "Harvard is Ignoring Its Own Anti-Semitism Experts." Um, that that. Um, unfolds this in a very thoughtful way and his writing in general on this topic um, I have found very helpful. Um, The other thing I wanted to say is that uh, something that I have found um, a particularly, um, I don't want to say of comfort, but um, a place, a space that has been um, uh, very active at BARD is um, that we have an MA in Human Rights and the Arts, um, which is a, a very unique program. It's very international. Um, students study uh, a series of core courses, and then they take courses that are affiliated um, across disciplines that have um, that have connections to the relationship between human rights and the arts. Um, and those students and faculty um, have been linking and connecting um, ways that art can respond um, to this moment in many, many different dimensions. Um, And so, you know, just this week, I've been attending a micro festival of the first year MA students um, projects. Um, In one of them, uh, we sat in the post office at the Bard Campus Center um, and uh, and unpacked a kind of um, reconstruction of bags and bags and bags of undelivered mail to Gaza because um, Palestinians under occupation cannot receive mail um, and, uh, and and piece together where those uh, items were meant to go on um, on maps uh, that had been printed out of Gaza. And um, last week uh, on December 8th, a very large group of faculty, students and community members staged a kind of uh, morning ritual funeral ceremony by the banks of the Hudson River um, that, again, was kind of offering a space where art and ritual and coming together can converge. It was not a protest. It was a moment of mourning. And um, and I think that the existence of that program, which brings together these two strands of thought, um, has been incredibly valuable for um, for creating space for um, for the coexistence of um, political speech, political thinking, um, human rights thinking and protest and contextualization and also art making and the receiving of art. That's great. Thank you for bringing those up. It, it reminds me that it, I think it reinforces a point that Shayoni made in her editorial, which is that it it is a time to be thoughtful and deliberate <laughs> about the way one communicates through performance and, and art making, and that it, it is you know to do so in deliberate and planned fashions is has obvious virtues to it at this moment. Yeah, and you know, I as more and more time unfolds. Um, in the current crisis, what I find myself, and this is, I think, the revision that I would make, um, I find my urge really is to center and start with Palestinian voices and lives. Uh, And uh, as much as truly I am engaged to the best of my capacity in 
debates in American universities around these issues, uh, there are several things that, uh, again, it's, it's a certain practice of what are the voices we're attending to. Um, I want to say that several of us uh, woke up with messages that the Janine, um, uh, the Freedom Theater and Janine Camp uh, has, you know, actually, if you've been following their stories, uh, they've had successive attacks. Um, and uh, since even October 7th, but even before that, uh, but as of today, the artistic director and another person was uh, mm-hmm. kidnapped, essentially. Uh, Renine Obde, who I, uh, who is a friend, and we've, uh, and I can talk about that in a second, uh, but she is the coordinator of the youth theater, uh, has been providing updates. Um, Fezal Abulheja, who was um, a prior artistic director of the Freedom Theater, had his house bombed earlier in November. Um, and I think we have to think about what are the conditions of survival of art and intellectual life in Gaza, in Palestine, in the West Bank. Uh, and we are seeing unprecedented loss of these kinds of voices and people in places. Um, and uh, we would do, you know, everything from universities to archives to, uh, again, theater and other art spaces are just being bombed to the ground. So what are we going to resurrect from these ashes is, I think, a real question about the conditions of Palestinian life. Um, in terms of a brief uh, again, I, I I share Miriam's hesitation here of what is the even appropriate word to use. It's not comfort, it's not hope, but maybe pause is 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 a word. Uh, Vanille, you suggested deliberativeness. Uh, but again, one of the losses that has been uh, there's so many and it's so hard to pick. Uh, but. Uh, Professor and poet Rifat Alarir was uh, was killed along with several members of his family last week, um, and since then he, there has been an outpouring of just people writing about how gifted and empathetic a mm-hmm. professor he was, teaching you know Shakespeare in the Middle East, um, teaching poetry to students, and really compelling. Uh, I read this lovely quote of his in. Um, a Max Blumenthal sort of uh, anecdote where, you know, uh, Alarir would say that we make the same slippages. We say, oh, this poet was uh, arrested or targeted and they're just a poet. And yet we we in that work are doing this sort of uh, minimizing a diminishment of the role of what a poem can do in a moment. And so I will offer this to listeners, and many of you have probably already encountered this, um, and I'm certainly thinking about it and going to write about it, um, is Alarir has this beautiful poem which has gone viral uh, since, which is called If I Must Die. Uh, And if you haven't read it, uh, I highly, highly recommend um, reading it. It's a powerful, powerful missive, which he ends with, if I must die, let it be a tale. so two things. One is the poem itself, and it talks about, you know, buy a piece of cloth, make a kite, give it a long tail, fly it in the sky so that, and I'm paraphrasing here, um, so that a child who could not say farewell to his father will look at it and think momentarily that was an angel. Very quickly, in London, in New York, in other, um, on our campus, we saw white kites. Uh, with his words on them. So this is a direct moment of sort of um, performative um, and visual elements uh, of of his words. And a second uh, is what I'm calling something called people's translations, where there is a long thread on Twitter of people translating this poem yeah. into different languages. Uh, and to me, those translations, the spontaneity of them, the empathy of them, because many of them start with disclaimers of I am not a you know, translator, or I've done a b- poor job, or this is to the best of my ability, or correct me if I uh, am wrong. So that in itself is a certain sort of nod to a certain commonality. Uh, but the translations themselves are a history of colonized languages. So for instance, there is Haitian Creole in there and um, transliterated into the English script, 
but also in a Haitian script. Um, there is one tiny detail of someone saying, you know, I've already read many translations in Spanish, but I'm doing specifically Puerto Rican Spanish because uh, every Latin American country has a different word for the word kite. Um, and so these are these lovely, delightful little details um, and linguistic sort of nuances, which this one poem is able to generate, which to me is really a nod to a larger history of decolonization itself. All right. Well, thank you very much, um, Miriam and Shayoni, for uh, joining in with uh, for this discussion, which I think we all felt like we it was important to have. Um, we'll have to move on now. But I'll put some links to some of the things that we've mentioned up on the um, podcast website. Um, we wanted to also uh, talk about some of the late reactions to the um, essay by Annalisa Diaz entitled Decomposition Instead of Collapse, Dear Theater, Be Like Soil. That essay was um, originally published in August of this year. And it basically is a ecologically grounded um, kind of wild and um, radical embrace of the idea that rather being rather than being stuck in a kind of perpetual uh, tragic dramaturgy of expecting a collapse from the theater industry that we might reconceive of this moment as along <clears throat> the lines of um, ecological regeneration, decomposition, and um, uh, uh, recreation. This essay um, was was widely read, and, and now there are a couple of reactions to it, um, written by uh, Estrelita um, Beatriz, uh, a theater maker in at Baltimore City Stage, and Jacob Padron, um, artistic director of Long Wharf Theater. Um, we'll put the links up, but um, I'm curious to know what uh, what you all make of this. I, either the sort of buzz around this essay, the the spirit that it embodies, or, or these recent responses? Sure. I mean, I think that um, I found this essay very valuable. I think, uh, as we, we have all seen this, um, the, the many of the past few years, um, and particularly into this year, um, a moment of um, contraction in just uh, the kind of theater landscape as it currently exists. Um, in a, in a very um, practical, financial way, jobs lost, um, seasons cut short, and, um, and, and what to think about all that and how to imagine a path forward. And this essay very clearly asks that um, we not try to mourn something that was already broken, but rather think about building something very different that is structured in an entirely different way. Um, and I really appreciated that. I, I particularly want to read from the original piece. Um, uh, you know, um, this section that identifies one particular thing that has been happening in our field. Um, the, the author uh, writes, in a recent conversation, someone told me, quote, the field is ablaze. It's up to us to put on our vest and be firefighters, quote, end quote. Someone else said, quote, these institutions want to be told what to do. They're looking for someone to save them, end quote. But we don't need saviors. So many leaders of color have been appointed in the last five to seven years and expected to be singular saviors of institutions that enclosed wealth for decades. So many more are about to be appointed. This, again, is a narrative problem. We know what happens to saviors. They are designed to be crucified. No, we don't need saviors. We need world builders. Um, I, I appreciated that both because it's a very clear diagnosis of, of um, something that, that has happened at, at so many institutional theaters across the country, um, and also um, because it is asking us to use our theatrical imaginations to think about the field and not to um, inadvertently or consciously um, participate in the same narratives um, that have played out over and over again, um, mostly to very inequitable um, effect. And I, I, the other thing I just wanted to say is, um, uh, you know, one of the questions that this brings up for me is um, the the original essay says, "Dear theater, be like soil," and I really appreciate that. And makes me wonder whose responsibility it is to be like soil because um, so much of this 
is asking, um, and I don't think that this is a problem with the essay, I think it's a problem with the way we think about these questions, which is to say, um, we can ask and ask and ask of theater artists, theater makers, theater producers, um, that they be a certain way. And Jacob Padron is a beautiful example of someone who's modeling that, um, that I'd like to just mention in a moment. But, um, but uh, where is the responsibility for the government funding? Where is the responsibility for any of the other infrastructural elements that would allow theater to even imagine um, itself forward? And so um, I, I also just want to add in that that this brings up to me, whose job is it to be like soil or whose job is it to nurture that soil or what, what, however we wanted to use that metaphor, that, um, that there's responsibility there um, and it is not uh, art makers or art producers um, responsibility alone. Um, I do think that um, Jacob Padron's essay was really powerful because, um, you know, full disclosure, uh, Jacob is someone I went to grad school with and I have huge respect for his work um, with the Soul Project and, and now as director of Longworth Theatre. And um, his decision uh, with, of course, his colleagues to um, no longer have a building um, in New Haven and rather to work within the city to find the right space for each production that they do, I think is um, really wonderful. Um, until I read his essay just now, I did not know how much resistance that decision had been met with. Um, and so I, my admiration for his decision is, is even higher. Um, with that. And I think that um, it should be possible for theater to have an infrastructure when, when it is the right moment for that theater to have an infrastructure, right? So that there should be theaters that are um, open-ended and situated within a city and find the right space for the right project. And there should be the infrastructure to support theaters that are situated on one city block of one city um, and, you know, to maintain that. and. Um, so I appreciated this group of essays and I think it opens up a lot of questions and I, I also appreciated that they're written um, in, a, in a variety of different um, prose and, and somewhat poetic styles and um, invite conversation there too. I'll, I'll, I'll give my reactions briefly um, and I wanna hear from, from Shayoni as well. I, you know, I think not being in the theater industry itself being an academic, I, I see this sort of as an outsider, but I did find the initial essay very um, kind of seductive and exciting. Like why, why wanting to reject the idea of being in a perpetual kind of pathos of decline and holding on to something for dear life, even though you know it may be broken, um, and wanting to have a, just a completely different attitude towards the future. That I very much understood. And I love the imagery um, of the sort of decomposition and, and natural regeneration. But there are problems with the metaphor <laughs> in certain ways. I, I think I don't think this is what you mean to say whose job is it to be like soil. But when I think of that question, I also think, well, is that, you know, the job of a of, a, of an actor with a permanent job at a you know institution that is having a hard time raising money, uh, it may be hard to look and say, okay, well, I will become like soil, like I this thing that's fixed and articulated and mission and you know built into this permanent institution needs to go away because there's people are going to lose out, um, and you know theaters are human institutions. We you can you can differentiate them from the doings of the natural world. The natural world in a certain way takes care of itself, but the results are not necessarily what we would want. <laughs> we, the nature itself can be unforgiving, and I'm not sure that we want um, a, a sort of cultural field that is operated on the realm of um, let nature sort of take care of it. And I, I don't think that's necessarily the spirit of the, of the initial essay. It's, it seems to be more that there are fixed structures that are decaying and dying, and we should not try to rebuild them in the way that they were rebuilt. We should try to build something else. But um, there, are, you know, I could see where the metaphor could could run into run into issues, or why people might have strong reactions to it. Or, or rather, just yeah, that that from all of the broken pieces, let that nurture something new, as opposed to thinking about it as you know garbage or um, you know just, compost, just something. Yeah, yeah is that it, that it's compost <laughs> and not trash. Really, really, I think is the um, yes. The point. Yeah. And, you know, Pinel, this sort of takes us back all the way to the beginning of we didn't intend for there to be a theme um, or quite as strong a theme in today's episode. But there clearly, I think this essay ties it in beautifully. And the original essay has this 
decomposition creates new worlds, nutrients recycle and release back into ecological systems, and also this idea of seeding. Um, and I'm really thinking about uh, Baruchas, what are sort of public functions of mourning, uh, our, you know, really thinking through what will a new Gaza look like rising from this rubble, and what do we imagine Gazan life to be after this crisis? We have to imagine an end to it and um, fight for an end to it. Um, and then this, it, again, to me, brings back the fundamental question of what are the role of the arts, what is the role of theater uh, in making these new worlds possible? Mm-hmm. I think that's a lovely sentiment to, to tie this up with. Um, we uh, should move on to our final segment, which is our drafts. Um, our drafts are our uh, percolating ideas, our um, incoherent, not incoherent, incomplete um, thoughts, reactions to things we've read or seen recently. Um, I'm going to uh, selfishly use my draft to promote the new issue of TDR, partly because Miriam also has an essay in this on the work of Faye Driscoll, uh, which everyone should check out. And I have an article in there as well called Action and Event, the Social Theoretical Precursors of Performance Theory. This is something I've been working on for a while and that is a part of the book that I'm writing, which is a, a attempt to write a, a novel intellectual history of the field of performance that looks particularly at our ties to um, social theory. And I'm very interested to know what people in the field will think about this. And so I'm hoping people will read and, you know, respond to it, uh, respond to me privately, respond publicly. Um, I'm just very interested to know what people will think. So that is that is my draft. And congrats, by the way, Miriam, for the publication of your essay as well. Thank you. Um, I, I'm honored to be sharing a, an issue with, of TDR with you. That was um, a really delightful surprise when I found out about it. Uh, for my draft, I, um, I'm realizing that I've uh, already spoken a little bit about um, some of what's been going on at BARD, so I'm repeating myself a little bit. But um, one of the things that I've been thinking about in a really practical way is um, space on campus. And uh, I have been having um, maybe lighthearted but also very serious conversations about how um, there's this basement um, underneath the BARD chapel that is small and easily flooded and um, not particularly well cared for. And the first people who have made me see this basement as um, an important part of our campus life have been the students in the MA in Human Rights and the Arts because its particular construction within the building allows it to host a particular kind of installation, to be a particular kind of space, to have a particular acoustic nature. And it is when those students um, who are asked to location scout on campus and find a site for each project that they're doing and not to assume that it's taking place in a theater, a gallery, or some other designated space for art, when those students started looking, it was when that was the first time that I and I think probably others became aware of that basement. Um, and it really kind of made me think differently about um, what campus space can be. Um, and so I just wanted to, on a um, on a, a a slightly lighter note, perhaps um, just just leave it there. With um, I have a new appreciation for the basements on my campus. It sounds like a very familiar experience of uh, doing professorial work in an old building with students who want to make new things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Thank uh, you, Miriam. Shayani. And I have, yes, I have sort of similar shout outs. Uh, one is I do want to um, point to, uh, continuing on the theme of TDR, one of our students, um, uh, Kathy Fang won the TDR undergraduate student uh, hey, essay. Hey. Uh, so big shout out to Kathy. Uh, she's just amazing. Um, and very much continuing on sort of Miriam's um, students leading us to new things. I don't know how many people have had a chance to read a New Yorker uh, account of all of the activism that's been happening on campus. Um, and there are um, uh, many sort of faculty efforts sort of uh, talked about there. Uh, but one of the things I will say is Manan Ahmed is quoted in saying this is the first time 
faculty have organized a uh, rally in response to students. And so we are very much taking our cue and being inspired by all of the incredible student activism that's been going on these past um, two and a half months. Uh, there is now a faculty staff uh, justice for Palestine uh, at Columbia Barnard and Teachers College. So if people want, uh, you can go find out more there. Uh, there is a Palestine po poetry collective that is doing weekly readings. And again, you can find materials online if you uh, Google them. And uh, just, you know, my eternal gratitude, we all do the things we do because we're so inspired by all of the young people we uh, teach, but mostly learn from. So um, in solidarity with students everywhere. It sounds great. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, uh, Shayoni. Thank you, Miriam. This has been a delight to talk with you. Um, I hope that the holidays go as well or better than anticipated. Um, and listeners, thank you for, for downloading. Thank you for streaming. We will have a new episode for you in the new year. On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com, email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can also find us on Blue Sky Social at ontappodcast. 